the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the uh, Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after four o'clock. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend, who is nowhere to be seen, is producing. Well, today we're going to talk with Steve Adams. He is a seasoned children's ministry worker and leader. Uh, He's the author of Children's Ministry on Purpose, a purpose-driven approach to lead kids to spiritual health. He challenges those who are dedicated to teaching children in Sunday school and children's ministry environments. What is your purpose and how do you clarify uh, your purpose? And also to put into perspective just how significant children's ministry can be. I think I've mentioned here um, several times that I came to faith in Christ as a very young child. And so I take seriously what children decide to do at a young age. So anyway, Steve Adams will join us later this uh, second half of this hour. And then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Kelsey Harkness. She's a senior news producer at the Daily Signal. We're going to talk about the pro-life, uh, pro-life activist, one of them anyway, who uh, filmed Planned Parenthood. They res- have responded to the bogus charges levied in uh, felony charges in California. She'll join us uh, about 19 minutes after five. And then Michelle uh, Peinado will join us. She's with Portland Adventist Academy. She's a teacher and a guidance counselor. She does a lot of things there. She's a, a woman of purpose, and she'll join us to talk about Portland Adventist Academy as we continue to focus our attention on some of the Christian schools in our community that, who are doing great work, uh, not just providing uh, academic rigor, but also providing an environment in which Uh, The worldview of parents is reflected and children are encouraged to develop and deepen their relationship with Christ, uh, to learn to love his uh, his word and much, much more. So Michelle will join us at about 530. That will um, uh, be a great conversation about Portland Adventist Academy. Well, so much going on in the last 24, 48 hours. It's uh, almost mind boggling. Um, But President Trump decided to rip into the conservative Freedom Caucus today as the feud between he and they pretty much one sided, but nonetheless is continuing to escalate. Uh, The president blasted the conservative House Freedom Caucus uh, today, saying the lawmakers are hurting Republicans and need to get on the team. Well, the Freedom Caucus uh, will hurt the entire Republican agenda, he said, if they don't get on the team and fast. We must fight them and Dems in 2018, he wrote on Twitter. Oh, how I wish someone could wrest his Twitter account from his hands and relieve us of his musings. But nonetheless, the group of about 30 conservative lawmakers opposed an administrative backed bill last week that the president, quite frankly, wasn't all that directly involved in. But it would have repealed and replaced Obamacare, sort of. Well, not exactly. Well, truth is not at all. But it would have been some sort of interim alternative leading to the president's first big legislative defeat. Well, Mr. Trump said after the legislation failed that he had learned a lot about loyalty in Washington 
as if the bill was all about him rather than the details of the bill that fell far short of promises made over the last seven years by Republicans who declared repeal and replace is our priority. Well, a member of the Freedom Caucus, Representative uh, Ted Yoho, a Florida Republican, called the president's tweet unfortunate. That's putting it mildly. We're not fighting the president, he said on Thursday on MSNBC. We're trying to honor what we ran on, 100 percent repeal of the Affordable Care Act. He said the president's comments, that's politics. You're not ever going to have everybody on your side on everything. I don't work for the president, he went on to say. Representative Justin Amash, a Michigan Republican, said on Twitter that Mr. Trump has succumbed to the Washington establishment. Yet others refused to fire back, saying they understood Mr. Trump's frustration, although they will not be guilt-tripped into watering down their principles. Congress failed him, not the other way around, Representative uh, Trent Franks, Arizona Republican, said. As long as he will keep appointing Supreme Court justices and trying to head this country in the right direction, he's probably not going to have a lot of criticism for me. Well, the president's tweet reflected the fruit basket upset of alliances in the uh, the wake of the repeals bill, stunning collapse, and rather than face a vote they knew would... Uh, uh, they'd lose. Mr. Trump told Mr. Ryan to pull the legislation before a roll call on Friday. So it was sort of a, a, a failure, although a vote was never actually taken. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer said Mr. Trump is looking for votes in Congress wherever he can. He has a bold and robust agenda that he is trying to enact, Mr. Spicer said. Asked if the president thinks he can enact major initiatives without the Freedom Caucus, Mr. Spicer said mathematically, yes. He said there are some promising signs that individual members of the caucus won't vote as a block and we're willing to look at the bigger picture beyond their group. Well, Mr. Trump, is, Trump rather has hinted at a deal with Democrats since his own party let him down. Wow. What are we how many weeks into it? And he's already anyway, there's a lot that could be said about that. But there you have the uh, the latest on uh, the president's. A tweetosphere. Meanwhile, the Atlantic is being very critical of Mike Pence, the vice president's marriage, and that's become fodder for the culture wars. Mr. Pence has made it quite clear that he wants to honor his marriage, avoid putting himself in situations where he might be tempted to step away from the commitments that he's made. But the Washington Post ran a profile of Karen Pence, the wife of the vice president, Mike Pence, on Wednesday. Well, the piece talks about the closeness of the Pence's relationship and cites something Pence told The Hill back in 2002. Unless his wife is there, he never eats alone with another woman or attends an event where school, where alcohol rather, is being served. It's unclear whether 15 years later that remains his practice, but that's what he said in 2002, which, from my perspective, is honorable. It's not in the Post uh, piece, but here's the original quote from 2002. If there's alcohol being served and people are being loose, I want to have the best looking brunette in the room standing next to me, Pence said. That's the exact quote. Well, some folks, mostly journalists and entertainers on Twitter, have reacted with surprise, anger and sarcasm as if why should they care about uh, what he decides to do with or without his wife to the Pence family rule. Socially liberal and non-religious people may see Pence's practice as misogynistic or bizarre, for a lot of conservative religious people, though, this uh, setup probably sounds normal or even wise. The dust-up shows how radically no, radically uh, uh, notions of gender divide American culture. Well, Pence is not the first contemporary public figure to set these kinds of boundaries around his marriage. He seems to be following a version of the so-called Billy Graham rule, named for the famous uh, evangelist, who established similar guidelines for the pastors working in his ministry. In his autobiography, he notes that he and his colleagues worried about the temptations of sexual immorality 
morality that come from long days on the road and a lot of time away from his family. He resolved to avoid any situation that would even have the appearance of compromise or suspicion, end quote. From that day on, Graham said he did not travel, meet, or eat alone with a woman other than his wife. It was a way of following Paul's advice to Timothy in the Bible, Graham wrote, to flee youthful lusts. Well, the Hill article gives more context on how the Pences were thinking about this, at least back in 2002. Pence told the paper he often refused dinner or cocktail invitations from male colleagues, too. It's about building a zone around your marriage, he said. I don't think it's a predatory town, but I think you can inadvertently send the wrong message by being in certain situations. The 2002 article notes that Pence arrived in Congress a half a decade after the 1994 Republican Revolution when Newt Gingrich was the Speaker of the House. Several congressional marriages, including Gingrich's, encountered uh, difficulty that year. Pence seemed wary of this. I've lost more elections than I've won, he said. I've seen friends lose their families. I'd rather lose an election. He even said he gets fingers wagged in his face by uh, concerned Indianans. Little old ladies come and say, honey, whatever you need to do, keep your family together, he told the Hill. Well, these comments show that Pence, uh, the Pences rather, have a distinctly conservative approach toward family, sex and gender. And this apparently has uh, uh, raised the hackles of critics who suggest um, those things are not worth preserving if it means uh, not attending a party or hanging out with a woman other than your wife. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Oh, by the way, you can read more about that in The Atlantic. It's um, You can find it online. How Mike Pence's Marriage Became Fodder for the Culture Wars is the title of that article. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Reminder, Steve Adams will join us in our next segment author of Children's Ministry on Purpose, a purpose-driven approach to lead kids to spiritual health. Well, this is just breaking. Mike uh, Flynn, President uh, Trump's former national security advisor, has told the Federal Bureau of Investigation and congressional officials investigating the uh, Trump campaign's potential ties to Russia that he's willing to be interviewed in exchange for a grant of immunity from prosecution. That's according to officials' uh, Uh, Close to the matter as an advisor to Mr. Trump's presidential campaign and later one of his uh, top aides in the White House. Mr. Flynn was privy to some of the most sensitive foreign policy deliberations of the new administration and was directly involved in discussions about the possible lifting of sanctions on Russia imposed by the Obama administration. He's made the offer to the FBI and the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, though, or rather through his lawyers. They say um, as far uh, that so far. Uh, they found no takers. Mr. Flynn's attorney, Robert Kilner, or Kellner, declined the comment further. It wasn't clear if Mr. Flynn had offered to talk about specific aspects of his time working for Mr. Trump, but the fact that he was seeking immunity suggested Mr. Flynn feels he may be in legal jeopardy following his brief stint as the National Security Advisor. Well, Mr. Flynn was uh, forced to resign after acknowledging that he misled White House officials about the nature of his phone uh, conversations with the Russian ambassador to the U.S. during the presidential transition. Again, no takers thus far, but he has made the offer that with immunity, he will uh, testify to either the FBI or these congressional panels. Meanwhile, two White House aides reportedly were sources for a top House Republican who said earlier this month that Trump transition Trump's transition team members were um, incidentally caught up in the surveillance conducted on foreign targets after the presidential election. It had been unclear who showed embattled House Intelligence Committee Chairman David Nunez, or uh, Nunez, I've heard about 15 different pronunciations, 
Um, though it previously emerged that California Republican viewed the files on White House grounds. But on Thursday, several current officials identified the sources to The New York Times. Ezra Cohen Warnick, the senior director for intelligence at the National Security Council, and Michael Ellis, an attorney at the White House Counsel's Office, who previously worked for the House Intelligence Committee. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer uh, today wouldn't confirm or refute the Times report. However, he did announce the White House had just hours before submitted a letter to the chairman and ranking members of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees, inviting them to the White House to see the information that had recently come to light. We are willing to provide them the materials that we have uh, come across, Spicer said. Well, asked if the president specifically directed anyone to look into allegations he had made about the Obama administration's spying on him. Spicer said he wasn't aware of anything directly. Well, the Times report appears to cast the actions of the White House aides as being undertaken on their own volition. Earlier this month, after Trump tweeted that former President Barack Obama had wiretapped him, uh, Ellis began viewing classified reports that showed intercepted communications of foreign officials. The Times reported the uh, reports mainly focused on foreign officials talking about how they were trying to develop contacts within the Trump family and inner circle, according to The Times. A spokesman for the uh, congressman declined to comment on The Times report. As he stated many times, Chairman Nunez will not confirm or deny uh, speculation about his source's identity, and he will not respond to speculation from anonymous sources. That's according to the director of communications, Jack Langer, in a statement. Representative uh, Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, told reporters today that we need to get to the bottom of whether this was uh, some stratagem by the White House. Well, obviously, that would be deeply concerning to us. And if it's necessary for us to interview these two individuals, then we should do so. And uh, I do think that the White House has a lot of questions to answer, he went on to say. Well, as to the White House invitation to view the materials, he indicated he would go as early Early as Friday. So perhaps we're getting to the bottom or somewhere uh, deeper into this uh, whole unfolding story. Meanwhile, South Korea's disgraced ex-president Park, I won't attempt the last name, was arrested early today, local time, it's Friday there, uh, on charges including bribery and abuse of power. The latest chapter in a dramatic downfall for the U.S. ally. Um, prosecutors accused uh, her of colluding with a confidant to extort from big businesses, take a bribe from one of the companies and comment, uh, rather commit other wrongdoings. The allegations prompted millions of South Koreans to protest in the streets uh, uh, every weekday for months before the Constitutional Court ruled on the 10th of this month to remove her. Park's presidential powers already had been suspended after the parliament impeached her in December. Live TV footage showed a black sedan carrying a park entering the detention center near Seoul. Earlier Friday, the Seoul Central District Court approved prosecutors a request to arrest her, citing worries that she may try to destroy evidence. Uh, many uh, park supporters were seen carrying national flags and shouting president when her car was entering the detention facility. South Korea's first female president rose to power four years ago. Uh, amid uh, conservatives' nostalgia for her late dictator father, who is accredited by supporting uh, by supporters for pulling a war-torn country out of poverty in the 60s and 70s. Liberal critics reviled her father as a ruthless leader who tortured and imprisoned his opponents. Meanwhile, there's a feud going on between John McCain and North Korean uh, head Kim Jong-un. Prosecutors uh, said they... Uh, wanted to arrest Park because her crimes were grave and because other suspects involved the sc- in, uh, were involved in the scandal. Meanwhile, uh, John McCain called um, Kim Jong-un um, a fat boy, if I'm not mistaken, and he has uh, 
threatened in response to annihilate portions of the United States. Sometimes I wish people would just sit quietly and not speak one way or the other. Well, a federal judge in Hawaii issued an extension on his order blocking the president's travel ban hours after hearing arguments on Wednesday. Hawaii contends the travel ban discriminates against Muslims and hurts the state's tourist uh, dependent economy. State Attorney General, and by the way, the, the numbers don't really match up there. There aren't a whole lot of folks who would be affected by that ban. Uh, those populations are not traveling to Hawaii. But nonetheless, the state attorney general, Douglas Chin, argued that the ban's implied message is like a neon sign flashing Muslim ban, Muslim ban that the government did not bother to turn off. Now, it, it deals with seven predominantly Muslim countries, excluded excludes rather 40 something others. So I'm not sure how that um, how that works. But nonetheless, extending the temporary order until the state's lawsuit was resolved would ensure the constitutional rights of Muslim citizens across the U.S. or uh, to see that they're vindicated after repeated stops and starts of the last two months, the state has said. Well, the Trump administration had asked Judge Derek Watson, a federal judge in Hawaii, to narrow his ruling to cover only the part of the president's executive order that suspends new visas for people from six Muslim-majority nations. The Justice Department told Watson the freeze on the U.S. refugee program had no effect on Hawaii. Watson rejected that argument, preventing the administration from halting the flow of refugees. Earlier this month, Watson prevented the federal government from suspending new visas for people from Somalia, Iran, Syria, Sudan, Libya, and Yemen, and freezing the nation's refugee program. His ruling came just hours before the federal government planned to start enforcing Trump's executive order. Trump called Watson's previous ruling an example of unprecedented judicial uh, overreach. Uh, which historically it, I think would be a fair charge, but nonetheless it only reaches um, Hawaii and won't affect others where the, the ban is already or the temporary ban is already in place. Well, as you know, the uh, uh, the vote, uh, the up or down vote that's expected on the next Supreme Court justice uh, has uh, been threatened by a filibuster and Chuck Schumer, who's now the Senate majority leader, is leading that filibuster charge against Judge Neil Gorsuch. Uh, his nomination, arguing that recent high court nominees have all reached a 60-vote threshold, so Gorsuch should too. Well, at a 2013 press conference, however, Schumer was uh, singing a, a bit of a different tune, saying that Democrats prefer up or down votes no matter who's in power. We much prefer the risk of up or down votes and majority rule than the risks of continued total obstruction, he said. That is the bottom line no matter who's in power, he said at a press conference. Well, then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid out of Nevada was leading the press conference convened to discuss his decision to go nuclear and change Senate rules to require only 51 vote majorities instead of the 60 vote uh, threshold for presidential nomination uh, nominations rather except those for the Supreme Court for too long Washington has been a gridlock 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 the american people are sick of it we're sick of it reed said at the same press conference acknowledging that there's a lot of blame to go around to both sides but then he pivoted to blame republicans for taking obstruction to new levels now the shoe is on the other foot which happens every so uh, you know often when there's an election depending on whose ox is being gored uh, principles tend to shift. We're going to take a break, and when we return, we'll talk with Steve Adams, author of Children's Ministry on Purpose. If you are involved in children's ministry or you have kids who are being ministered to, you won't want to miss that conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, children's ministry can be one of the most challenging leadership roles in the church today. After all the work and the service and the plans, children's ministry leaders can find themselves asking, well, 
Am I really making a difference? Well, sometimes with active ministry, even the best leaders struggle with purpose. Well, my next guest, Steve Adams' new book, Children's Ministry on Purpose, a purpose-driven approach to lead kids towards spiritual health, is a great resource to help you through that uh, through that commitment. The book can show you how to build a solid, biblical, and balanced foundation for reaching and discipling children. His passion and care for children's ministry and leaders reverberates throughout his, uh, his practical, purposeful guidance and encouragement. Children's Ministry on Purpose is designed to encourage and inspire leaders to thrive and to reach their full potential, making the most of the opportunity God has given them to change the landscape of eternity. Gleaned from his 25 years of mentoring children's ministry leaders all over the world, my next guest, author of Children's Ministry on Purpose, um, is uh, offers a basic, positive, and proven resource, helping children's workers solidify the purpose of their ministry and also help leaders rediscover both their joy in the work with children and why their ministry is vital to the future of the church, giving it a, a broader context. Well, Steve Adams serves as the children's pastor at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest, California. For 25 years, he has mentored children's ministry leaders all over the world, and he currently leads a dynamic staff that serves seven California and three international campuses. Steve authentically communicates his passion for children's ministry through his blog and podcast, More Than Puppets. He lives in Orange County with his wife, Stephanie, and their two sons, and joins us today to talk about his uh, passion and his new book, Children's Ministry on Purpose, a purpose-driven approach to lead kids towards spiritual health. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Georgina. It's a privilege to be with you. Well, I am the product of a passionate um, children's ministry worker, so I, I stand uh, behind you f- <laughs> four square because this is a great opportunity for adults to reach uh, kids today. And so uh, kudos on writing a book that I think will help um, those who do uh, teach children really recognize the value of what they do. Uh, thank you very much. It was uh, certainly a, a joy and an honor to do it. Now, you, as I mentioned, have been involved in children's ministry for over 25 years. You've mm-hmm. encouraged and helped equip others. Um, the book is an extension of that. Why did you think at this time, uh, encouraging those who do children's ministry work to focus uh, on purpose, why this was a good time to, to do that? Well, on, honestly, at this at this point in the game for me, I, I feel like I've I've had an opportunity to um, to learn a lot of lessons uh, through some success and through a whole lot of failure. <laughs> it's there was a, a lot of the things I've learned over the years um, came uh, through just trying some things. They didn't work, recalibrated, and tried again. Mm-hmm. But no, this is I'm, I'm going on actually my 28th year wow. of ministry in the local church, and uh, about four years ago. I really felt uh, really felt an urge and a desire to to write this resource because there there wasn't there wasn't really something uh, that that helped that, that I felt like could help me in, in my ministry context. And what I mean by that is a lot of the books that I had read connected to children's ministry were, they were connected to a, either a, a very specific paradigm or to a particular curriculum. And and I thought, man, th- there's got to be another way to help children's ministry leaders just take that one or two extra steps to make their ministry a little more effective uh, and, and leading kids towards spiritual health. And, uh, and then I, I, I just learned that the best way to find those solutions was through asking the right questions. And that, that was really what drove it was when I came to that realization that it's all about asking the right question 
that's when I knew it was uh, it was time to write this and put it in the hands of other children's ministry leaders because it, it doesn't say uh, this is how you do it. If you're going to have a, a, a successful or an effective ministry, you must do it this way. It's not that at all. It, it actually just leads the reader down a, a pathway of thinking. And in doing so, then that leader will find the solutions that they're looking for and probably solutions and ideas that have been there all along. They just didn't they just didn't have them in the forefront of their mind. Yeah, yeah. You begin in the introduction by encouraging answering the question, is this making a difference? And I suppose for every uh children's ministry worker who dedicates him or herself uh to the kind of work and they they're um looking in the faces of the children they're charged with teaching and wonder, am I making a difference? Oh, yeah, it's uh <laughs> It's a question that those who work with children, they, they ask themselves that all the time. You know, in, in children's ministry, there's a, um, it's not necessarily a scientific number, but I use this, this number, I call it the 99.9% rule, which, is, which says that 99.9% of what we do in children's ministry, no one sees. Mm-hmm. No, no one really sees the, the prep work that goes into it, the, the, what has to go on behind the scenes just to get things ready and recruiting other volunteers and training people, making sure it's safe and secure, dealing with parents. And uh, you always have those children who need just a a little extra grace and and extra attention. There's so many different facets and uh, uh, so many different components to working with children that a lot of people just don't see. And you just go through multiple phases over the years of really asking yourself, man, is this, is this really amounting to anything? Because there, are, there have been many times I've walked away from events or services and just thought, wow, I, I don't know if this is really making the difference that I thought it would. Hmm. So how do you answer that question? Well, the, for me and what I've shared with other children's ministry leaders, and I, I, I talk to people on a, on a regular basis who are at that point where either they've, they've hit such uh, intense struggles in local church leadership, uh, or they just don't, they, they're tired of, of working extremely hard with very little, if any, support. Uh, and some of them are just physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually tired. And they come to that point where they're saying, I just don't know if this is worth it. There's no magical answer. But what I, what I tend to do is I, I ask them a question that I've used myself, and it has helped me many, many times, and that is, why did I start doing this to begin with? What was the reason that I got into children's ministry to begin with? Why, uh, why am I a part of this ministry? Why does my ministry exist? And by going back to that why question, every time I ask myself that, I go back to that moment where God gripped my heart and said, if you want to make a difference for the kingdom, and that's where it began with me was, uh, Georgine was a prayer. I said, God, if, if you want me in a ministry, great, but I, I, want to, I want to do something that's going to make a difference. I don't want to just be a part. I don't want to just um, go through motions. Where can I make the biggest difference for the kingdom? And he showed me that for myself, that was children's ministry. And when I go back to that moment when God made that real to me, that every, every time that I've come to a point where I've wondered, do I want to keep doing this? Is this really worth it? Am I really making a difference? I go back to that moment when I say, why am I doing this? And, and it recharges me. It gives me exactly what I need in that moment to uh, go another day. And sometimes that's all that we need. I know for some children's ministry workers, the answer would be, well, because they begged us in the main service that they <laughs> yes. needed helpers. 
Um, do you have to be called to children's ministry? Is there a specific calling or just being willing to serve in a ministry that you recognize as being of value? Is that sufficient to make a difference and um, to uh, impact young people's lives? Georgina, I love that question. And I, I think it's, I, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both and because mm-hmm. you, you certainly have people who, uh, like myself, have had a life call to children's ministry. Um, and then there are others who are servants of the Lord, and they want to be a blessing to their church, and they're willing to step in and, and fill a need. And uh, a lot of people who serve in children's ministry came in just the way you described. Either um, it was a, a desperate situation, or they were tricked, like, hey, can you do this? Just for just for a few weeks, just for a month, and then four years later, just a little bit longer, and then four years later, and quite frankly, that's that's how I became a staff person in children's ministry. Was I was just supposed to fill a gap, and then here we are. I'm talking to you, 28 years later, <laughs> still filling that gap. We're going to take a quick yes. break, but we'll continue our conversation. We're talking about the books, children's ministry on purpose. Steve Adams, my guest. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about children's ministry on purpose. Steve Adams, with a 28-plus year experience in children's ministry, is the author and our guest this afternoon. Um, you uh, have been uh, ministering in a large church most recently, but the book that we're talking about, Children's Ministry on Purpose, and uh, the the outline that you provide is for any size uh, children's ministry department. Uh, is Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. We and even at this very moment, we uh, we know for a fact there are uh, small churches uh, overseas, literally meeting in huts that are following this this process that we've outlined in in this book, as well as mega churches in the states. And it's because it's not it's not geared to a um, a specific specific megachurch paradigm at all. And there's a, a natural tendency for people to look at that and see the, the phrase purpose-driven and just assume that it is a, a, uh, a real specific paradigm that you have to follow in, in order to get the result that I'm saying that you can mm-hmm. get by following this, uh, this process. But the reality is it's simply intentional discipleship. And Saddleback, we just happen to call that purpose-driven. Other churches call it uh, different things, but it's it's just a matter of looking at what you're doing inside your children's ministry and then arranging it strategically so that, that you're leading the children in incremental steps towards uh, spiritual health. And uh, this, it truly has been and is being used by uh, churches in all kinds of ministry contexts all over the world. Mm. Now, in children's ministry on purpose, you say there are five simple but powerful questions that children's ministry leaders should ask. Let's start with those mm-hmm. five questions that will help them uh, move forward. Sure. The The first one is, why, why does my ministry exist? You know, I've discovered just the same as asking that question personally. Why, why do I exist in ministry? Why am I here? Mm. Why am I doing that? When you get to the, the why question, that really creates your sense of purpose. And even for children's ministries, creating, understanding why your ministry exists is really the foundation that everything else is built on. So the, I, in, in the, the book, I, if some people would, would say, well, that's a value system. 
And I kind of take a different approach with that because, you know, for us, we use uh, uh, five particular purposes that we draw from the Great Commandment, the Great Commission, to form our, our mission statement, which is the why and why we exist. And everything is built upon that. So you can't really effectively address the other questions until you know why your ministry exists in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, uh, after asking the why question, we move to the where question. And that has two parts, where are you now and where are you going? And I use a, uh, a map as the primary visual of this book. And in essence, we're leading the kids from uh, multiple places because even the kids that come to any of our campuses here or other churches that I know that, that follow this process, the, the kids are all over the place. Some come from two-parent families, single-parent. Uh, some are brand-new Christians. Some have grown up in the church. They're all over the place. But using this this uh, map, this mission map, to move them from wherever they are towards spiritual health, spiritual health you you can't do that until you know two things because to use any map you have to know two coordinates where you're where you're standing and then where you're going yeah. so we asked the where question where are you now having a sense of awareness of the condition of your ministry and how your ministry functions now and then where do you want to take it where where is your ministry going and then the third that we ask in, in these steps is who are you trying to reach uh, it's one thing you know I, I've I've been in the church a long time and we like to say things like we're going to reach the world. But the reality is my church isn't going to reach the world. The world's too big. That's why we have many churches all over the place, and we have uh, multiple denominations, and we have different types of churches for different types of people. No one church is going to do that. So the, you have to really be authentic or, 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 or honest about that question and say, okay, then who are we trying to reach? And and it's amazing. That one question was uh, – was, uh, a big deal for me when I really started dialing in. All right, so my church here in this community, who are we positioned? Who are we poised to reach? And then how do we um, position ourselves to do that? Yeah. And the third one, or I'm sorry, the fourth one is uh, how are you going to move your, your children towards spiritual health? And this is the strategy question. Um, it's one thing to uh, know why you exist and where you're going and, and who your audience is. Now you need to develop some strategy behind that. And that basically is, how are you going to reach these people? How are you going to move these kids towards spiritual health? And then the fifth and final question that we ask is the what, and that is, uh, what are the essential components that you need to support the strategy? So when the strategy is developed, some people kind of stop there, or we know how we're going to do it, but you need some structural elements in place to support that strategy, um, budget, facilities, uh, policies, processes, those, those are structural elements that have to exist to support that strategy. So that's the five questions that we walk through. And in walking through the why, the where, the who, the what, the how and the what, we basically just lead the, the children's ministry leader, whether they're staff or volunteer, down this pathway of thinking. And instead of telling them, this is who you should be reaching, this is how you should be doing it, we let the, we let the reader figure that out as they challenge themselves with these questions. Yeah, with regard to the uh, the who you um, write in children's ministry on purpose that it's possible to look at children in churches and communities without actually seeing what their world is like. Uh, and you talk about um, uh, how landscaping a child's life can help you better minister to the kid. Really trying to endeavoring to understand the children to whom you are called to minister. Yeah, well, the you know. 
many times in the, but I've, another thing I've experienced in the church world is we, we tend to, and this is no big secret, we tend to stick with the same thing for a very long time. And, um, and at times we can almost make uh, some of our traditions, uh, we almost, we don't mean to, but we hold those in, in the same light as we do scripture. It's like, well, we can't change that. Well, we, we can't alter that at all. We've yeah, we've always, always done, done it this. that way. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Classic, classic statement in, in, in the church. But with, with children, um, sometimes, you know, we look at how we're reaching out to children and, and how we are uh, discipling the kids. And we forget the fact that the world that they live in is very, very different than the world our kids lived in just 10 years ago, let alone when I was a child. And so a lot of times, whether it's volunteers or staff work with kids, when they're ministering to the kids, they tend to do it through the framework that they remember. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is that world doesn't exist anymore. So using that landscape map to try to, try to chart what a kid's going through, when, when I walked through the exercise myself for the first time, uh, it brought me to tears. It, it completely broke my heart. When I looked at that and realized my kids are navigating this every day. My kids are having to navigate pornography, the bullying, bullying that my kids are having to navigate, um, the, the fear, the, the anxieties. When you look at those things and realize our kids are dealing with adult-like situations, the things that, that, that we dealt with as, as young adults, these kids are dealing with them now. Yes. And that's why I feel like it's important for those that work with kids to have a really good sense of awareness of what the kids in their community are going through. In the eighth chapter of Children's Ministry on Purpose, uh, you write about developing a healthy volunteer team, and that's always a challenge in in children's ministry. I'm not sure we value properly those who work in children's ministry and recognize the value to the the future of the body of the Christ and certainly to the lives of these children. Uh, Talk a little bit about um, motivating volunteers, investing in them, and um, helping to put together a team that's going to minister to children effectively. Yeah, it, it, it really truly isn't an easy thing. Uh, but it's absolutely a necessity, and it's not a necessity just in the sense that man, we just we just need to find people. Uh, that's another thing that we've done in the church world, you know, uh, over over a lot of years. Is man, if somebody was, if they're just willing, I don't care who they are, if they're breathing and they're willing to go back there with the kids, then let them do it. And and uh, for a long time, the the church world has said that kids are second class citizen. They really didn't see them as um, a part of the congregation that was worthy of much investment of time, of resources, or, or attention. And I think there's been a real resurgence in the church here as of late, uh, recognizing the fact that we, we absolutely must. It's not, it's not a luxury. It's an absolute must that we do this. And it's through our volunteers that this happens. Because the kids at my church, they don't come back because of me. They don't come back because of the teaching. The kids who come back to our church every single week, they come back because that volunteer is going to greet them at the door by name and going to give them a high five and let them know yeah. that they're loved and that they're welcomed here. Well, the book is titled Christian Ministry on Purpose. Uh, Steve Adams, thank you so much for talking with us and for thank putting you. together a great resource. Appreciate it. Thank Bye-bye. you so much. By the way, the book is published by Zondervan. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. This hour, we're going to talk with Kelsey Harkness. She's a senior news producer at The Daily Signal. We're going to talk about one pro-life activist who filmed the Planned Parenthood responding to the bogus charges in California, 15 felony charges against him and his co-worker in that effort. We're also going to talk with Michelle uh, Peinado. She is the uh, with Portland Adventist Academy. We're going to continue our look at Christian schools in the Portland metro area. Looking forward to a conversation with uh, Michelle to tell you more about Portland Adventist, one of the fine Christian schools in the Portland metro area. And I think you'll um, agree with me that we're learning that in addition to having a Christ-centered focus, these are competitive academic uh, environments. You'll find that with Portland Adventist and those that we've already spoken to, and I think we have a couple we'll be talking to next week. It's uh, really very impressive. These are serious education professionals uh, who hold a biblical worldview and are committed to training young people not just to compete academically, but to prepare them for the real world uh, as Christ followers. So looking forward to that conversation. 530 uh, this hour. Uh, on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, we talked uh, in the previous hour with Steve Adams. He's written a great book for children's ministry workers. In addition to providing some practical tools to help improve your children's ministry program, I think it really elevates properly the role of children's ministry workers. They are underappreciated in most cases. I won't say all, but in most cases, it's difficult to find individuals who are willing to miss what's going on in the main sanctuary, while children's ministry oftentimes Uh, takes place. But these are people who are dedicated to serving children. Um, And uh, his book, Children's Ministry on Purpose, a purpose-driven approach to lead kids to spiritual health, uh, is designed to do just that. But I noted, and I made reference to it last week, that there's a Barna study that indicated that pastors and parents tend to differ on youth ministry goals. Now, children's ministry and youth ministry tend to be different things. Uh, but Barna uh, writes that a few years ago, The Atlantic ran a cover story called The Overprotected Kid. The piece argued that a preoccupation with safety has stripped childhood of independence, risk-taking, and discovery without making it safer. The ensuing discussion raised a number of questions about the tug-of-war between a parent's protective instincts and their desire to raise fearless kids. They may not be compatible. Well, this dynamic plays out in schools and child care centers across the country, but is acutely felt in youth ministries as well. Are the parental priorities of safety shared by both youth pastors and leaders and whose goals take precedence? Well, in partnership with Youth Specialties and Youth Works, Barna conducted a major study on the state of youth ministry in the United States, which included a look at the expectations of pastors, youth leaders, and parents. I thought it was interesting and wanted to share in light of my conversation just a few moments ago some of what they found. Well, the priorities of senior pastors and youth ministers were these. Barna researchers found that senior pastors and youth leaders are are generally aligned when it comes to their thinking about what youth ministry should accomplish. When they're asked to identify the top two goals of youth ministry, a substantial majority of church leaders chose discipleship and spiritual instruction as one of their highest priorities. Seven in ten senior pastors, or 71%, and three-quarters of youth pastors, 75%, say this is uh, one of their top goals. Building relationships with students is a primary objective for about half of youth pastors, and two in five senior pastors while evangelism and outreach to youth, to their peers, is selected by roughly one quarter of each group. Evangelism to the parents of teens, on the other hand, doesn't appear to be as important. 
Uh, even in mo- if most church leaders don't prioritize reaching out to parents, many express a hope that parents will reach in. One in six senior pastors, for example, believe getting parents involved with spiritual formation is a top goal of youth ministry. And youth pastors are even more likely to say so. One quarter identified uh, this as a priority for their ministry. Um, so sort of an interesting view on what senior pastors and youth ministry leaders have to say. Now, while discipleship is high on most youth pastors' priority list, a small majority also say that reaching teens outside the church is a significant focus of their ministry. Well, what about um, parents' expectations, uh, standing apart from or in agreement with uh, what senior pastors and youth leaders are saying. Well, parents have their own set of priorities when it comes to their kids' youth ministry experience. And as the as uh, was shown in the study, most parents have a hard time narrowing them down. A majority of parents whose teens regularly attend youth group rate each and every feature as either very or somewhat important, not making much of a distinction. Safety is of paramount importance to virtually all parents at 96% or somewhat important. Presumably, this would include their kids being kept safe from physical harm but many parents can also think of safety in emotional terms, especially since the recent introduction of safe spaces on campuses across the country. Essentially, parents want a supportive community for their kids where they have positive friendships with peers who are also exploring faith. Notably, while outreach to teens who do not attend church ranks low on the list of parents' priorities, nine out of 10 say it's very or somewhat important. Uh, to them. Uh, Like youth pastors, parents acknowledge that outreach and evangelism are important, but not as important as their other priorities. Now, most workers in the church would say uh, evangelism, discipleship, outreach, those are of primary importance. Youth pastors significantly shape the group experience and parents' expectations of their leaders reflect that reality. Seven in 10 parents whose teens regularly attend youth groups say that they have a, a major expectation that their youth pastor is discipling their teens. The majority expectation appears to align with church leaders' goals for youth ministry. About six in 10 parents say youth leaders should be helping teens navigate uh, friend relationships and helping them navigate family relationships, which may point to the relational volatility so many teens and by virtue of proximity, their parents experience as they proceed through adolescence. Uh, They broke it down by race, but I always hate doing that since we're supposed to be in the body of Christ. Uh, That shouldn't be our focus, but they say that white um, and other ethnicities, 47 to 30 percent, respectively, and high income parents, 52 percent and 36 percent, respectively, of those who make less than one hundred thousand dollars per year are more likely than others to say talking about sexuality and dating is a major expectation. While lower income parents are inclined to say they expect youth pastors to help their teens navigate family relationships. Now, what does the research mean? Again, we're we're, uh, quoting from Barna, who did the study. Uh, There is a well-known narrative shaping our perception of teenagers, says the associate professor of theology and Christian ministries at Gordon College and a contributor to the State of Youth Ministry Report. The narrative is as old as the, as the socially created category teenager that emerged in the 1900s. We hear it daily in the media, in helicopter parenting, and even in our approaches to youth ministry. The idea that teenagers are broken, deficient, and in need of help. We problemize uh, or problematize uh, teenagers and use significant resources to try to fix them. Well, this narrative evokes fear, and in loving response, parents are desperate to keep them safe. I'm not saying we live in a danger-free world. Of course, there are real dangers. What I am saying, the professor goes on to say, 
is that teenagers are more than problems to solve. They have potential as human beings, and surely God sees their potential in Jesus Christ through the work of the Spirit. Helping teenagers imagine how they might contribute to God's redemptive movement in the world will unveil their potential, she continues. When parents, youth pastors, and church leaders train their eyes to look beyond the dominant problem narrative, to recognize teenage potential and provide a place in the church for teenagers to practice using their gifts— Teenagers will find a meaningful purpose in the church. The busyness of teenagers is connected to the longing of adults to help problematize teenagers, make it into adulthood. Uh, Imagine if we saw teenagers uh, as Christ does, full of potential to join God's purpose. And this is uh, an excerpt from the State of Youth Ministry. So it's an interesting uh, study. You can download it, um, uh, Barna. You you can get the whole study, but uh, this is just kind of the uh, executive summary of it. Of it, rather, pastors and parents differ on youth ministry uh, goals, and the interesting thing they agree on is the problematization—a word I'd never seen before—the problematization of uh, teenagers' uh, problems to solve, rather than. Uh, seeing them as more gifted, which sort of uh, agrees with what Steve Adams, my guest in the previous uh, two segments, was suggesting that part of the questioning that we need to do is, is who? Who is it that we are ministering to and try to better understand who they are rather than uh, decide ahead of time that they fit into a category named teenager, for example, or in this his case, children's ministry, and um, to try to determine who they are actually. One minute, really? Well, I won't start this then. I had, was going to get into a, a, a piece on the Patriot Post uh, written by Tony Perkins on Planned Parenthood. Uh, we're going to talk with Kelsey Harkness here. She's a senior news producer at the Daily Signal on the pro-life activist, one of them who was charged with 15 counts of felony. And Tony Perkins, in response to that, and I'll only share just a, a bit of it, uh, no one has done a better job persuading people to defund Planned Parenthood than, well, Planned Parenthood. And he's referring to much of the information that has become available through the work of uh, a couple of individuals who have put themselves in uh, precarious positions to to garner that information, the Center for Medical Progress. We'll talk with Kelsey about that uh, in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you probably know by now, the pro-life activists who created undercover videos that triggered multiple state and congressional investigations into Planned Parenthood's abortion practices are facing more than a dozen new felony charges in California. Uh, The Week writes, to say that this is outrageous is an understatement. To many pro-life conservatives, this is rather like a journalist posed as a drug dealer to expose a drug pen. And the result was an indictment for the journalist and the kingpin getting scot-free. David French says this about it. It's becoming increasingly clear that in the state of California, the right to abort a child is the chief liberty in the land. And all all other liberties must bow before it. Few things illustrate this sad and morbid truth more than the decision of the California, uh, California attorney. General to prosecute or more accurately persecute David Delighton and Sandra Merritt. And finally, Mother Jones points out that while most of the media is ignoring this story, Mother Jones of all outlets is defending Delighton and Merritt. They don't agree with the conclusions drawn by the pair, but believe California has overstepped its bounds. Well, the charges brought by the state's attorney general allege that the Center for Medical Progress founder David Delighton and his partner Sandra Merritt 
unlawfully recorded people without their consent and conspired to invade their privacy. In total, they face 15 felony charges. Quoting from The Daily Signal, and here to talk with us more about this is Kelsey Harkness, who is the author of the uh, uh, piece on the subject in this, the uh, Signal. She's the senior news producer at The Daily Signal. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, this is, I suppose, not altogether surprising, given the fact that this is the state of California. But I suppose the first question should be, does California have grounds to charge uh, this pair with 15 felony charges? Well, what's interesting is that California is a two-party consent state, which means if you want to record a private conversation, you, as a journalist, need to seek the consent of the second person involved. But the reality is this two-party consent law only applies to private conversations. The areas where Delighton was recording these conversations, he purposely did this in public, in places like restaurants and public uh, public hotel conference rooms. So, so he, there. Honestly, I think everybody's a bit surprised, as you said. Even Mother Jones is coming out to defend them. Uh, I would say this: this is an attack against journalism. Although Delighton is certainly an unconventional journalist, this is the same type of journalism that we've seen from places like 60 Minutes for decades. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you quote uh, Delighton, who dismisses the charges as bogus and politically motivated. No surprise there. He also refers to the. Uh, uh, the charges from Planned Parenthood's political cronies as fake news. Um, you have had the opportunity to speak with him and perhaps uh, uh, the other uh, person named in this suit, uh, Sandra Merritt. Um, your thoughts on their response to this new set of charges? I don't think either one of them are surprised by this. They've already been uh, charged and cleared of those charges in Texas. And both in Texas and California, we've seen kind of ridiculous grounds to bring these charges. In Texas, uh, they they tried to charge him for having a fake ID and, and criminally charge him for having a fake ID. This is the same kind of fake ID that high school or college students use to get into a bar. And yet when a journalist uses it to attempt to expose uh, Planned Parenthood, very questionable practices that Planned Parenthood may be participating in, uh, he gets prosecuted uh, for simply having a fake ID. I mean, are, are, is our government going to go around prosecuting everyone in the same respect for having fake IDs, uh, you know, simply for all the college kids that use them? I, I don't think that's a good source of our government tax dollars. So I think this is clearly politically motivated. It was in Texas. It is in California. And I'll also mention that there's been some great reporting out recently showing ties to uh, from the California Attorney General's office to Planned Parenthood. He directly received uh, campaign contributions from Planned Parenthood, as well as his predecessor, who really launched this event, launched this investigation against the Leiden. Mm. Well, this all dates back to the the videos that. Uh, the Center for Medical Progress secretly recorded and published in 2015. And I understand there are uh, more still to come. In fact, one just in the last day or so was uh, released as well. It raised questions about whether or not Planned Parenthood had uh, profited from the sale of uh, fetal tissue and body parts from aborted babies. And the uh, the video seemed to make that point. Now, they were often referred to as highly edited, which was not the case. But nonetheless, uh, this was an, an outrage to Planned Parenthood and its supporters. 
um, as uh, as well as those who are also implicated, like STEM Express and DV Bio, uh, Biologics. Now, my understanding is for your article, you uh, reached out to them but did not uh, get a response or at least immediately hadn't received a response from either of those two companies. No, I didn't get a response from these middlemen companies who Planned Parenthood uh, used to work with. Uh, after what happened was after Planned Parenthood performed an abortion, they would uh, take the different body parts and tissues from that aborted baby, uh, pass them along to this middleman company, who uh, congressional investigators have alleged have profited from selling those body parts and other tissue onto research organizations, um, even uh, even universities. Uh, so it, it is. It, it, it's, it's important to note that while we hear these charges against the Leiden, of course, these are leading headlines on Washington Post and every other news site. Uh, Planned Parenthood and these middlemen procurement companies actually face real charges. Um, they, they, they likely will face real investigations by the Justice Department because they were referred under a congressional investigation to be uh, formally investigated for breaking a lot more serious laws than the privacy laws that were seen brought forth in California and the fake ID laws that we saw happen in Texas. Well, you're absolutely right that there was a year-long congressional probe launched by Republicans and that resulted in a handful of criminal and regulatory referrals to the Department of Justice. It's a different Department of Justice than I think most expected, given the turnover uh, following the election. Um, how concerned are Daleiden and Merritt that they are uh, that these charges are going to stick? Or is it uh, from a legal standpoint clear that that uh, there's nothing to fear, as was the case in Texas, where they were cleared of charges? Well, I'll, I'll say I think if they were really concerned about these charges, they wouldn't have moved forward and released a brand new video the day after they were dropped. Mm-hmm. I think that was uh, that I think that was sort of a response to these charges that nothing you do is going to stop me from attempting to expose what they believe is illegal practice going on uh, inside of Planned Parenthood and some of these middlemen procurement companies. So to answer your question, I, you know, of course, they are lawyering up. They have had their attorneys for some time now, uh, but they're ready to face these charges and they're ready to move forward in their own investigation. You know, I think it will be interesting to see how many more videos that they have. I don't think anybody really knows that right now. Uh, and, and with this sort of surprise drop uh, with this with this most recent video, uh, it sort of just adds to the narrative. Mm-hmm. Planned Parenthood is on the chopping block for their taxpayer dollars right now. And every time they release another one of these videos, it reminds the public why Planned Parenthood is under the microscope right now. Yeah, yeah. And again, there uh, there is an effort to defund Planned Parenthood, which has uh, many of its supporters uh, in a fit of hysteria. Let's let's hope that, in fact, that is successful, at least from my perspective, uh, moving forward. Well, thank you so much for helping to clarify and also sharing um, what Mr. Delayden have to say about uh, all of this in your piece in The Daily Signal. Appreciate it very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Again, Kelsey Harkness is a senior news producer at The Daily Signal, talking about uh, Mr. Delayden and his colleague who have now been charged with 15 felony charges. Uh, I don't think there were that many in Texas where uh, they uh, managed to um, have them all drop. But nonetheless, in California, they are moving forward uh, with similar charges there. We'll follow that story as it develops. And as she mentioned, they also released another video uh, the day after those charges were announced. Kelsey Harkness. You can, by the way, uh, find the uh, uh, the 
Daily Signal just by Googling the name, and they have a series of articles on this and other issues of import as well. Up next, we're going to talk with Michelle Peinado. She's with Portland Adventist Academy. She's a guidance counselor. She's a teacher. She does a lot there. In fact, she's uh, quite a uh, uh, fixture and beloved uh, part of the faculty at Portland Adventist. And this is our continuing uh, look at Christian education in the Portland metro area. Uh, the men and women who are serving in that capacity, training young people, not only with the kind of academic rigor that parents are looking for, but in the context of a Christian worldview and biblical uh, Christianity. And so uh, we look forward to talking with Michelle about Portland Adventist Academy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. As you know, these last few weeks, we've been shining a light on Christian schools in our area. And it's such an encouragement to me personally, and I think to you as well, to learn about some of the schools in our area that are putting Christ and helping students develop a relationship with him first, but doing so in an academic environment that challenges them to grow and develop all of the gifts and talents that God has given them. Well, today we're going to be talking about Portland Adventist Academy. And to join us to do that is Michelle Peinado, who is a teacher there. She's a guidance counselor. She does a lot of things. And in fact, it was interesting, one of her uh, colleagues uh, brought the uh, the bio, and it's clear that she is highly respected and highly regarded by her peers and by other students. So we are just honored to have you with us today to talk about Portland Adventist Academy. Welcome. Thank you so very much. Thanks for having me on the show. I know that the motto there is Christ-centered, character-driven. That describes Portland Adventist Academy. Let's begin by just giving you an opportunity to describe for our listeners who may not be familiar with uh, with Portland Adventist Academy what you all are like and what you're about. We are um, a school that absolutely loves Jesus. And we have about 300 students at our school, and we are such a, a close-knit family. It's one of the things that I love talking to parents about is you hear the term that um, a school becomes a family or the school will be your family, but I can't say how often I have families come to me, students come to me after their students enrolled and say, wow, my student has found a family here. My child feels like they are connected to the other students and they know everybody. They have teachers who care about them. They have teachers who pray with them. Um, we have multiple pastors on staff who work with our students, and every student finds their niche and their group of people that they um, feel connected to. You know, I have been uh, somewhat familiar with Portland Adventist Academy. You all have been a part of the landscape of the Portland metro area for a number of years, but I went to the website to try to go deeper and learn a little bit more, and I have to tell you, I was very impressed by the website because you provide a lot of information, and uh, what you all are doing is very impressive, but I was especially taken by uh, the comments that were made by students who are actually attending Portland Adventist Academy and giving them an opportunity to express what the school is doing for them and what they are accomplishing because of their connection. And that's impressive to me as well, to hear students talk about their experience there. It's exciting to know that our students want to be there, they love to be there, and they embrace um, new students who come to our school so very quickly and just pull them into that family. It's exciting to see the passion that the students have, not only for their academics and um, the extracurricular activities we have on campus, but also for reaching out into the community, reaching out across the world. And so um, it's just a wonderful group of kids to work with. Yeah, it's a, a wonderful campus and program there. Let's talk first 
most about academics? Because I think for any Christian parent who's looking for a, a stable environment, a safe environment to uh, send their children to school, one that reflects their, their worldview, um, academics is an important part of that. So let's talk a little bit about that aspect of Portland Adventist Academy. Absolutely. Academics is um, an essential piece of, of that high school education program. Uh, we offer multiple AP and dual credit classes. So students who want to be challenged academically, students who want to earn college credit while they're in high school, we have multiple classes for them to to do that with. We also have a well-rounded program. We offer um, classes as diverse as anatomy and physiology to uh, media art classes. We have an extensive art program and music program. We really want our students to have lots of options and choices. We have a very popular auto mechanics program. Um, and so there's, there's lots of different uh, pathways students can mm-hmm. take through, through school. We also recognize that some students have some academic challenges in different areas. And so we have programs that support students in those ways as well. Mm. I wanted to mention that Portland Adventist Academy offers advanced placement courses, honors courses, accelerated summer courses with travel courses for college credit. So you really cover the full range, those who might need some additional help and those who excel and and are looking to move from the high school experience onto college or university. Exactly. We want every student to have an outstanding high school experience at, um, and push them as much as they are able to or willing to be pushed. Now, I know for a lot of families, they wonder if I send my son or daughter to a Christian school, if they're going to get the same kind of experience I had with athletics and some of the extracurricular opportunities that they enjoyed in a public setting, are they going to find that at Portland Adventist Academy? They definitely will. We have a very strong um, sports program. We have um, competitive um, sports teams from soccer and volleyball and and cross-country, basketball, golf, and uh, women's softball. We also have um, other uh, clubs. We have rock climbing as a club. We have a historical simulation society. There's quite a few different ways that students can be involved. We have a strong international student program, and often um, our general students signed up to be mentors to the international students, and they have lots of activities that go along with that and lots of socialization. And again, I would encourage our listeners to go to your website because there's great information there about all of these uh, all of these opportunities. Now, we started out talking a little bit about what makes Portland Adventist Academy a Christ-centered, character-driven campus. Let's talk a little bit about your approach to the Christian faith on a, a school campus such as Portland Adventist. How will the students uh, be exposed to the gospel, to the scriptures as part of their overall training? The most important thing for us as a school and, and as individual teachers is that each student experiences Jesus. We want our students to have a personal relationship with Jesus. We want him, every student to know him and to be able to trust him and turn to him and um, have Jesus as their best friend. And so we have uh, Bible classes. Every student is enrolled in a Bible class every year that they're at school. We have chapels and assemblies. Every teacher has worship in each of their classes every day. We also have um, different opportunities to serve. Every student participates in uh, what we call a com- community action plan. They, they Every semester are working in their community, serving their community in ways that um, I don't know, serving their community. In addition to that, 
we have mission trips that go all around the world. We have um, some of our students uh, during spring break spend, are spending a week here in Portland building a tiny house for mm-hmm. Dignity Village. We have other students who are in Thailand building a church. We have students in Fiji who are helping at a medical clinic, others in the Bahamas helping with other medical clinics. We have students who serve um, throughout the school year, but also concentrated services during spring break. Now, I know that one major factor on any um, high school campus is the faculty. And I know that the teachers at Portland Adventist Academy, uh, they're not just talking to kids about how to seek God and to know him, but they themselves are seeking God on a daily basis. These are men and women who are motivated by their faith, who are highly skilled uh, in uh, the the area of academic um, uh, teaching that they're involved in. So your faculty plays a major role in uh, just the, the feel of Portland Adventist Academy and that effort to develop character uh, in, in students. Absolutely. Our faculty um, is there because they love teaching. They love students, they love teaching, and they love God. And this is just a perfect place where they can bring all of those loves together. And our students comment over and over about how caring and how invested faculty members are in each one of them. We have faculty who not only have worship in their classes every day, but who also meet individually with students, who pray with students, who are involved with students on a much deeper spiritual level, Throughout, who, who keep in touch with students for the rest of their lives. Um, our faculty is very committed to our students. Well, Portland Adventist Academy has been a, a tremendous uh, asset in our community for many years, and I, it's just an honor to talk with you about Portland Adventist today and to encourage our listeners to go deeper, to find out if that's, this might be a, a location for their sons and daughters, their grandchildren for a Christian education. Portland Adventist Academy is located on 96th Avenue in Portland, and uh, I know for, for parents and grandparents who'd like to learn more, what's the best way for them to go about learning more about Portland Adventist Academy? The best way to learn more about Portland Adventist Academy is to go onto our website, paasda.org, and if um, they have any questions at all, they can either um, send us an inquiry through the email, through um, the website, or they're welcome to call us directly at PAA. They could um, set up a tour at PAA. We'd love to show them around, answer any questions they have. We're always looking forward to meeting new families. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. I know this is uh, spring break, so we really appreciate your taking your personal time to do that. And thank you for serving our community so well. Thank you so very much. God bless. Again, uh, Michelle Pinedo is, uh, Pinado, rather, is uh, with Portland Adventist Academy. If you'd like to learn more, you can phone them at 503-255-8372. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, we learned today that a Umatilla, Oregon airman died on the 28th of this month in Syria. He was in a non-combat-related incident while deployed in support of combat operations, according to the Department of Defense. Staff Sergeant Austin Biren, he was 25. He was serving in northern Syria as part of Operation Inherent Resolve. According to the Department of Defense, no details were provided to of the manner of his death. But again, it was not combat related. He was serving in his capacity as a member of 
the U.S. Uh, Air Force, however. Uh, Beren was assigned to the 21st Space Wing at uh, Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado. A press release from that base reads that Beren, a security forces airman, died from uh, suspected natural causes while deployed to northern Syria in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. Staff Sergeant Beren was a valuable and beloved member of our team and will be sorely missed. This is a quote from Colonel Douglas Scheiss, 21st Space Wing commander. His dedication, referring again to Mr. Biernan, um, his dedication to his country was evident in his actions. He was a superb airman. Well, Biernan uh, enlisted in 2010 and had been at Peterson since June of 2014. The base press release included his military achievements. His awards and decorations include the Aerial Achievement Medal uh, with one device, Air Force Achievement Medal with two devices, Meritorious Unit Award, Air Force Outstanding Unit Award, Air Force Good Conduct Medal with one device, National Defense Service Medal, Global War on Terrorism Expeditionary Medal and one device, a Global War on Terrorism Special Medal, Humanitarian Service Medal, Nuclear Deterrence Operations Service Medal, Air Force Expeditionary Service Ribbon with Gold Border, uh, Air Force Expeditionary Service Ribbon with One Device, Air Force Longevity uh, Service, U.S. Air Force NCO Professional Military Education Graduate rib- uh, Ribbon, Small Arms Expert Marksmanship Ribbon uh, with One Device, and the Air Force Training Ribbon. I mention all of that because this was an Oregonian who died serving in his capacity as a U.S. airman. He was uh, from Umatilla, Oregon, and we wanted to acknowledge him and uh, his uh, family and say thank you for your service. Yesterday I mentioned that uh, there was a group of some 14 people in a van. They were coming back from a retreat. Um, We learned today, the number yesterday was much smaller. Today we learned that 13 people have died after that car crash in Uvalda County, Texas, uh, yesterday afternoon, the bus carrying the elderly uh, elderly parishioners, and that ranged anywhere from 61, I guess that's considered elderly now, up to the mid-80s, um, they were coming back from a three-day choir retreat. Uh, they crashed into a pickup truck, or rather the pickup truck cat crashed into them. It crossed over the line, apparently, veered into their lane. The driver of the bus was a retired teacher, uh, and 11 passengers died at the scene, while another died later at the hospital, bringing that number up to 13. The passengers killed in the crash have now been named, and again, their ages ranged from 84 all the way, or excuse me, 87 all the way down to um, uh, 61. Um, the pickup truck uh, and the minibus were uh, in a head-on collision. Authorities say a 20-year-old was uh, driving the uh, the truck. It veered into the oncoming traffic, collided head-on with the minibus carrying 14 back from this three-day choir retreat. The, the driver of the bus was a 67-year-old, and 11 of his passengers were killed at the scene. Another died uh, after being taken to a hospital, and there is one other survivor. Passenger Rosemary Harris, 64, and the driver of the pickup truck, 20-year-old Jack Young, survived uh, and are in stable condition at the hospital. I can't imagine uh, the heartache of Rosemary Harris, uh, who was uh, one of the passengers on that bus with uh, 10 of her, including the driver, 11 of her close uh, friends, uh, members of the same church. She survived. They did not. Among those who lost their lives in this collision, 
Howard Allen, 81, Rhonda Allen, 61, Harold Barber, 87, Margaret Barber, 82, Christy Moore, 68, Donna Hawkins, 69, Avis Banks, 83, Mildred Rosamond, 87, Addie Schmeltkoff, 84, Sue Tisdale, 76, Martha Walker, 84, and Dorothy Fern Vullett, 84. Um, Barrett, the driver, was a semi-retired middle school math teacher and uh, was the married father of four. The parishioners are being uh, brought back to the the church after a three-day retreat uh, at a Baptist camp in Leakey, which is uh, some distance away. The church, First Baptist New Brownfells, told the Daily Mail yesterday that they were among elderly members who didn't want to drive home, so they opted to ride. Others who were at the same event uh, drove their own vehicles. Um, uh, their own cars from that event. Just, uh, just a very sad thing. Again, um, 13 were killed, two others injured in the head-on crash and survived. All of the victims who died were senior adults who attended First Baptist Church in New Brownfells. A total of 14 senior adults were in the vehicle. The church is, of course, in mourning. The pastor, Brad McLean, addressed members of the media today, uh, excuse me, last night and again today as the congregation gathered at the church for prayer and support. If you can imagine on a Wednesday afternoon, you know that your senior group has gone for the senior choir has gone for a, a period of retreat and you learn that 14 members of your congregation, these are people who had been apparently part of the church for a, numbers of, a number of years, have simply uh, passed away all at, at once in a um, an auto collision. And so the church is grieving. They've asked that uh, the body of Christ across the country pray for them. And so I'm bringing it to your attention and asking you to do uh, the same, this uh, First Baptist Church in um, in Texas. On the other hand, you think about these 13 who are anticipating um, Holy Week and reflecting on the sacrifice that Christ has made for them. Uh, those 13 uh, we'll see him face to face this Holy Week and Easter season. There is great consolation in knowing that one has a relationship with Christ and provision has been made. Eternal life is a part of the present and extends beyond our last breath. And those men and women, um, elderly all, are um, in the presence of the Savior. They had gone to celebrate. In fact, we learned that they were doing Bible study, enjoying fellowship together, uh, doing some music together. And so there's great consolation. That 20-year-old, I would encourage all of us to pray for, for that 20-year-old. I believe it was a he. Um, uh, th- that has to be devastating once he has recovered and come to his senses. We don't know the details or um, why this occurred, but for him to know that he was responsible for the deaths of 13 people will be devastating. And my hope is that he will be embraced by believers in that community in Texas and that somehow there would be a redemptive edge even to uh, to these horrific events. So if we could just pray, God knows all their names and where it all happened. So we just remember them in prayer. Well, tomorrow we are um, anticipating uh, being a Friday that we will lighten up and just focus on some of the lighter side of the news. There's a lot going on. We talked about much of it today. Um, We are are called in scripture in Ephesians. We need to pray for those who are in authority. It doesn't say you need to like them. It doesn't say you need to agree with them or support them. Uh, it does say that we are required to pray for them in order that we might live peaceable lives. And for those uh, whose judgment we question, I think we are uh, obliged to doubly pray for them, um, that they would uh, somehow ascertain the wisdom of, of God and that those things that are good would be successful. Those things that are not would be somehow thwarted. Uh, but certainly there's much to be um, to be prayerful about in our country today. So much division uh, and anger. 
Um, so I hope we will um, we'll all continue to do that. But on Friday, we're going to step away from the more serious side of the news, which unfortunately will still be there on Monday when we return to it. So I hope you can join us on this last day, last weekday um, of spring break. And I know some of you have enjoyed some of that vacation time. So that's what we're planning on uh, Friday. Looking forward to that. All right. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. James Blend, who happens to be enjoying a bit of a vacation this spring break, but is the official producer of the program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.